companies tend to start out by, you know, hiring on like culture fit (laughs) or the whole buzzword was culture fit. The problem with that is a lot of people interpret culture fit as someone like them, you know, someone they can go to the pub with or go play football with or someone they get on with. Um, But actually, you know, the more important thing is values fit. And something I'm very passionate about is values fit. You know, if you've got people who share values but are very different, that's where real creativity and innovation happens. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, and this is Skeptical Talks, the podcast where creative entrepreneurs talk about their successes and failures, fears and ambitions, and what they've learned in the journey of making their ideas come to life. Diversity is one of the key factors for success in business and in life. And Pip Jamison is extremely passionate about it. Pip is the founder of The Dots Network, the diverse and unbiased creative platform where you can find the best talent worldwide. Imagine a supercharged version of LinkedIn for creative people. Google, Airbnb, Wired, Vice, Facebook are just a few of the companies that have worked with The Dots to find the best talent for projects and teams. In this conversation, Pip talks about the challenges that she faced as a female founder in the tech industry, how neurodiverse is the key to build a great team, how she looks at the role of creativity in an artificial intelligence-driven future, and much, much more. This episode is sponsored by Future Workshops, a software product company that has been developing apps and platforms that people love for over a decade. Brands like Shazam, the British Open Golf, RBS, IBM, and many more have worked with them to build products that you might be using at the moment. Their uniqueness comes in their process. Each client's goals, ambitions, and challenges are painstakingly distilled in tandem with a deep understanding of the needs and challenges of the audience and end users. Metrics are defined to gauge success, and everyone works together to deliver a great experience. If you are a startup founder, an entrepreneur, or a business owner looking to take your services to the next level, make sure to give them a visit at futureworkshops.com and tell them Fabio has sent you. Now, let's hear it. One of the things that um, impressed me a lot is how you sign up your emails. You say something like, delightfully dyslexic on, on your email <laughs> signature. And I find that uh, impressive because nowadays it seems like we live in this world like that everyone is trying to be perfect and everyone is has this um, filtered life on Instagram. And, and uh, finding successful people like you that promote this kind of thinking, it's it's very refreshing. And yeah. uh, I'd like to, to understand a little bit more about your dyslexia and if that had any impact on your on your personality or on your childhood, that probably could lead you to to create uh, what you created nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, yeah, it had a massive impact. I think. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you like my signature. It's um, it's funny because um, I suddenly find that more people are using it. So lots of our community has started using it, which is really it. Kind of, it was a necessity more than anything. Like I send so many emails every day, and I was having to get like my husband to proof my emails and 
or my team to proof my emails. And it was just, just crazy and efficient. So yeah, I just, uh, I just started putting delightfully dyslexic excuse typos. And it was so funny how like suddenly, you know, people would see an email come through from me that was like misspelled or the punctuation was wrong. And, and like, you know, I, you know, kind of criticize me, I guess, um, or judge me. Um, and then as soon as I put that on, I think it moves the people's thought space to empathy. And it was so funny because it wasn't until that that I really started thinking about my dyslexia because um, someone uh, uh, someone actually contacted me and asked me to do a talk on my dyslexia because they saw me um, write it on my signature. And it was really then I started reflecting on how dyslexia has shaped, I guess, a lot of my life and a lot of the way um, I think about the world and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the way I think about diversity and the importance of diversity. And yeah, I guess, you know, as a child and anyone listening who has dyslexia will probably remember this, this time, but you know, it was, I was doing okay in school until I was about six or seven. And then something just sort of, I just stopped being able to learn like everyone else. And it was so kind of frustrating. Like suddenly in one year, I went from being, you know, just a normal kid to like falling behind massively. Um, And I just, my brain just wasn't learning in the same way as other people. Um, And back then, like, you know, this was quite early, not many people knew that what dyslexia was. Um, and so the teachers kind of just told my, my mum and my parents that I was just not that bright. Um, and my mum, my mum is amazing. Like my mum was like, she just wouldn't have any of it. You know, she was like, no, I know she's bright. I know she's bright. There's something going on. And actually my mum was working for a charity in, in London at the time um, called New Kids on the Block um, before before the dodgy band, <laughs> New Kids on the Block. Um, and uh, my mum was doing these um, educational puppet shows um, to primary school kids. Um, and there were these giant puppets um, educating kids on disabilities. And my mum was specifically doing a puppet show that was about um, a cerebral palsy. So there was one puppet that didn't have cerebral palsy and there was one puppet that did. And it was educating kids. And so she go into school educating kids that while cerebral palsy is a physical challenge, they're anyone with cerebral palsy is just like us, you know? And so she'd do these puppet shows and after the puppet shows, they do like um, interactive workshops with the kids. So for example, they put gloves, I'm sorry, socks on the kids' um, hands and and ask the kids to undo their, um, try and undo their buttons on their shirts. And obviously that's really hard. And so it's kind of showing the kids, this is what it would feel like if you had cerebral palsy, your brain would be exactly the same, but you just would find it hard to un- untie buttons or undo buttons. So, so it was while my mum was working for that charity, actually, she went to a talk um, on this thing called dyslexia by an American lecturer. And she was like, oh my gosh, that's what, that's what Pip's got. Um, so I was very lucky and I guess very privileged in a way that I, I, my mum identified it really young in me, not, not, many dyslexics were as lucky at my age. Um, so I actually, um, went to one of the first dyslexic schools in the country. Um, and I started getting help, um, young. Um, 
I, I would say, you know, it was, it was still really, really hard. Most of my, most of my school life, like it was, I reading, writing, um, I muddle words a lot. Um, and my brain just doesn't think in the same way. So for example, I have almost perfect image recognition in terms of memory, but I have, um, terrible kind of word or number um, memory. So for example, I don't even know my phone number. (laughs) So, um, so, uh, it was, it was kind of like having to learn, but in a completely different way. So with words, for example, I see patterns, I don't see letters. So uh, a common mistake with words is if the first letter and the last letter are the same, I will, I will just kind of think it's the same word. So, you know, things like where and where are really hard, there and there are really hard because to me, the pattern, I, I kind of recognize the word from the first and the letter, last letter. Um, so yeah, it was just, you know, it was really tough, but I, I guess later on in life, I've come to realize that actually it's like, I guess my superpower as well. So <laughs> Um, you know, I, when I was asked to do the talk, I started sort of researching about more about dyslexia and obviously I'd heard about, you know, entrepreneurs being dyslexic. And so there's an amazing stat that 35% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic and 40% are self-made millionaires. And I was kind of like, why is that? You know, what is it about our brains? You know, when, when we're more likely to become entrepreneurs and when we're entrepreneurs, we're more likely to be successful. And what did Uh, you find about that? That's interesting. That's a very interesting step. Yeah. And it was kind of just this sort of, this is sort of strange that this just happens. And so I then started researching why. (laughs) Um, And, um, and, and, and the, the interesting kind of thing phenomenon with how our brain works is there's a couple of things. One, we're very highly creative. Um, and the reason we're creative is actually there was a brilliant piece of Yale research that found that um, we, I mean, humans are the most sophisticated robots, I guess, or machines that exist. You know, we take in loads of data all the time and we synthesize that into creative thought or gut, gut feeling and intuition. And with dyslexics, what Yale found is that we have wider peripheral vision. So we're taking in more information about the world all the time. And so we find it easier to kind of connect things or connect the dots. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's why we over-index because our brain actually takes in more information all the time. Okay. So that, that I found really interesting. Um, and then we also have higher levels of perseverance, um, which I guess is a key trait for, for, for entrepreneurs. You know, we've got to persevere through hard times. Um, and, and they're not really sure why. They think maybe it's because we had to, we struggled when we were younger that we kind of learned that you have, if you work hard and if you persevere, you can succeed. So we, we learned those lessons earlier than lots of other people learn them. So we have, we have, I guess, built up a perseverance muscle, um, quicker than other people. Um, and so the other thing is, uh, um, and this is another piece of Yale research that found that we have, um, higher levels of empathy. 
Um, and again, they're not completely sure what it was about, but they think it's because when we were young, we were the outsiders and we didn't quite fit in. So we empathize with other people that are outsiders or don't fit in, um, which is a trait that you know, makes us good leaders because we actually care about the teams we build and the people we build. So all of those kind of like combinations of things that are in sort of ingrained and dyslexic. So the also the things that make great entrepreneurs. So uh-huh. it so, seems yeah. like it seems those superpowers. It's it's exactly what you've been promoting on with the dots, and it seems like um, one of the things I found in in some of the interviews that people do to you is that you love promoting um, diversity yeah. and that's a trait it's one of your superpowers as you say like I'm, I'm I think differently and I want to promote this so that people understand that this is a superpower it's, it's nothing wrong with it um, what what do you think it's it's difficult for people for especially companies to promote what makes it dif- difficult for, for companies to promote this kind of uh, diversity in, inside their companies? Yeah, I think I think what sort of happens in in companies, and I mean, we work with around about 10,000 now that look, use us to hire. Um, I think the challenge comes is companies tend to start out by, you know, hiring on like culture fit <laughs> or the whole buzzword was culture fit. The problem with that is a lot of people interpret culture fit as someone like them. You know, someone they can go to the pub with or go play football with or someone they get on with. Um, But actually, you know, the more important thing is values fit. And something I'm very passionate about is values fit. You know, if you've got people who share values but are very different, that's where real creativity and innovation happens. And, like, you know, it is so proven now. There is endless research that, you know, diversity in all its multifacetedness (laughs) and the intersectionality is better for business, it's better for creativity, it's better for innovation because, yeah, if we're all the same, we can't think differently and we need to challenge each other and look at things from different perspectives but I think companies have struggled with this because you know it sometimes feels more comfortable as humans to work with people like yourself and actually there's some brilliant research on this where it found um, they basically did research on two teams one team was very homogenous so very similar and one team was very diverse and they set them the same challenge Um, and at the end of the challenge they interviewed the teams and said okay how did you think you performed the team that was really homogenous thought they did really well and they were patting each other on the back and they thought it was great Great because they all like agreed with each other and they just thought it was, you know, they, they'd nailed it. The team that was actually quite diverse um, actually scored themselves down because they were challenging each other. There wasn't early consensus. Mm-hmm. So that I think was really interesting. But the more interesting bit is when they looked at the output of the challenge, the team that was more diverse performed better. Mm-hmm. So funnily enough, sometimes people that are different, it can feel uncomfortable because you don't get that early early consensus, but at the same time, the output is better. However, on the flip side, there is also research that um, 
teams that are different long term are happier. And the reason being is over the long term, there's less competition because if people are all like you, you tend to compete with each other Mm -hmm. in in a a kind of more political way. But if everyone's different, it's more challenging in a constructive way. And so there was this brilliant piece of research by um, Creative Equals that showed that um, teams that are, are reflect society as a whole are 43% um, happier. Um, and there's, I think it's 48% more likely to stay with the business. Um, but it's, it, it might be the other way around. That's my dyslexia. Yeah. It might be that uh, <laughs> it might be that 43% more likely to stay with the business and 48% happier. But either way, um, so yeah, I guess you know, with that, it's because yeah, you you get you na- you start getting natural empathy for other teammates because mm-hmm. they're different and you're not competing. <laughs> it seems it seems like um, hiring hiring for diversity is it's. It's 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 something that will probably require more time. It from a manager perspective or from a, a business perspective, and do you think there's a correlation between that and probably not a lot of people spending time to actually find the right person rather than they just look for sameness as you mentioned, like oh, who's your mate? Do you want to him to join the companies for culture fit? And uh, do, do you think like it's it's easier to find people that are the same because that brings less drama and a short period that brings like less time researching that brings like less people less time waiting probably for for getting a, a new creative in the team or a hundred, yeah 100% <laughs> like i mean we experience it every single day i mean companies you know take shortcuts as mm-hmm. they, they try, you know, and I can understand sometimes why, you know, say they say they've suddenly got a new client and they need like 10 people tomorrow, you know, there's, there's, there's business challenges involved with that. Um, and the, but the problem with that is they'll, yeah, do the classic ask everyone internally to make recommendations. And then you end up with very similar people. Um, they'll go to the, the same places that they usually go to. So they'll go to the same recruiters, um, recruiters again have built, you know, talent pulls out of their little black books. I think algorithms are increasingly problematic. So for example, recruiters will use tools that will screen people based on like educational background, you know, they'll screen out universities that they've never heard of, or they'll screen out people who have never been to university. And then actually, you know, obviously, something that I'm passionate about is, I mean, LinkedIn is part of the problem. And that's why I'm trying to build another solution. I mean, LinkedIn's algorithms are are quite old and quite ingrained now. Mm -hmm. So LinkedIn will over index on, um, on educational background. So, you know, if you went to Oxford University, you'll come higher in search results. Um, it will, it also reinforces, I guess, the, the old networks because Mm -hmm. you'll come higher in search results if you're connected to the old networks. So men tend to come higher in search, for example. Um, and so, you know, those sort of algorithm biases. So, I mean, you know, the, if people are kind of using the same tools or the same little black books, you're just going to end up with homogenous teams. I mean, I guess the, the the massive danger in what we're seeing is that, you know, homogenous teams then aren't best for business. So it hurts the businesses in the long run by taking those kind of shortcuts. So, 
Yeah, I think a lot of the, 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 the biggest challenge we've had as a business has been like having to try and, you know, re-educate a market that you need to look in different places um, uh, and you need to start opening up your thoughts. So, you know, if you had only ever hired people from Central St. Martins, <laughs> you've got to change your views, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, we've... Um, We've actually just uh, finished a six-month program. We were working on Google with Google called the Fast Track 50, which was um, fast tracking 50 18 to 25-year-olds who are either first-generation university or have never been to university, and giving them access all areas to the creative industries. And what's sort of been interesting about that program is these like these rising stars are more driven than I've, I've never met 18 to 25 year olds as driven as these ones, you know, because they've had to work so hard to even get to university. I mean, you, you might not recognize the university they went to, but none of their family's ever been to uni. So to get into university, they had to work hard, so hard or to get where they are, they've had to work so hard. And so with that, kind of, you know, background, there's a less privilege, I guess. Mm. And, um, and, you know, if you're hiring in from more privileged kind of, I guess, circles, you're having people who are, you know, they're like, where's my, where's my, you know, table tennis table yeah. or where's my milkshake or where's the free food? Um, but, you know, they focus the, on the uh, like other things rather than the actual work. Then than the actual work. Mm. And, and also they, you know, don't necessarily get in and just get on with it. And mm -hmm. so. You know, there's these amazing talent pools that we're not tapping into on so many levels. And so, you know, um, you know, we've got half a million members about. So I love men, by the way, <laughs> just a caveat. I, I'm, I'm a feminist that loves men. Um, but yeah, our community is 68 percent female, 31 percent BAME, which is black, Asian, minority, ethnic, 16 percent. LGBT, but we also obviously do a lot of work around socioeconomic movement. Mm -hmm. So you can't search for talent by educational background on the dots. Yeah. Um, and but we also do a lot of work promoting a neurodiverse talent, which is dys uh, dyslexia, autism, dyspraxia, um, and something that's increasingly worrying me is ageism as well oh, and, okay. and disabilities. So, I mean, really, when I think about diversity I definitely think about it is in just building teams that reflect society mm -hmm. um, and that can be very intersectional so I am a sole female tech founder who's white my challenges are very different from a sole female tech founder who's black for example so I you know that we, we've got to remember that people the world is very different in its all its differences <laughs> and so the most important thing is to build teams that reflect that difference <laughs> what, what would you uh, recommend like someone that is just starting a company and wants to uh, promote diversity in a team yeah i think the most important thing is to back to the values i mentioned it's it's nailing what your values are and hiring for values not culture okay. and so for example at the dots um uh, one of our core values is positivity mm -hmm. um And I don't mean positivity for positivity's sake. I don't want people to just uh, just say yes to everything and smile. It's more 
around uh, a team, building a team that's focused on solutions, not problems. Um, and so we, we, we do values fit interviews before we do skills fit interviews. Um, and the reason we do that is if our values align, then, then, then everything else will align. So one of our other values is diversity. And so we actually um, kind of ask questions to scream for that right from the beginning. And I think where I've made mistakes on hiring is where I've hired someone because I've been like so impressed by their skills and think they're amazing. And then I've they've, they've fallen down on one or two values. Um, and I think if you start thinking about values fit instead of culture fit, you start getting a much broader cross-section of people to look at. Um, yeah, go on. I, I find that super interesting. And I, I'm actually super interested to understand what kind of questions do you ask for a value fit? Yeah, so we're pos for positivity, for example, we ask people like, how would your friends describe you? Mm. And it's a, it's a really, <laughs> it's funny, like people are really honest. And like we've had people who are kind of like, oh, moody, negative, <laughs> uh, argumentative. <laughs> you know? yeah. And funny enough, you just let people talk, you know, um, and it's amazing what sort of um, comes out of that. Um, so those are the sort of questions we ask, but we also do front door and back door uh, reference checks at the end of the process just to double check. Yeah. So what that means is front door references is where you, you talk to the people that they put on as a, as a reference check. Mm -hmm. And those people are really useful because they're always going to say something lovely about the person. I mean, they wouldn't put them as a reference if they didn't. Um, but that's a really good opportunity to double check mm -hmm. the values and ask um, similar questions to the values fit questions you ask. The backdoor references, are, which are references from people who they used to work with but haven't put on their CV, um, those are really useful for also just double checking you're not hiring a nutter. <laughs> You've mentioned previously like the challenges of being uh, a white woman in the in tech industry and probably the challenges of being a, a woman in tech trying to create this successful company. Can you talk me through some of the challenges of, of being a, a woman in, uh, in tech and, and possibly like trying to raise money for uh, a venture or, or something else? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, the, the stats are kind of a bit scary here in the UK. So, um, Just to put it into context here in the UK, um, only about um, 9% of angel funding. So that's like the like earlier stage investment level goes to female founders. Um, we closed a 4 million round recently and at my level it's only 2.3%. So there just isn't that many of us. Um, and the reasons being a very, very complex. Um, but I guess one of the reasons is, is around biases that exist in, in the investment landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, so women find it harder to raise money. I mean, don't get me wrong, raising, raising money for any business is a nightmare for any founder, male, female, whatever. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, it's hell. <laughs> so, um, but it is particularly, 
challenging for women. And again, it's very complex as to why, but some of the reasons are, you know, uh, investors are very male dominated. So there's very few female investors. So again, what tends to happen is investors will invest in things they understand um, and won't invest in, uh, you know, for example, femtech, um, which is a massive rising sector right now. It has been really hard to get off the ground because, you know, you, you go and pitch an investor on a period app. They just don't get it, you know. And, you know, famously, you know, for example, Natalie, who founded Netta Porter, when she was raising, like the investors just didn't get it. You know, they just didn't understand shopping behavior. They went home and asked their wives. Their wives were kind of like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, and, you know, they just didn't feel that there was an opportunity there. And so that bias means that it's harder to get kind of um, products off the ground that don't resonate with the investors you're pitching to. So that's one problem. Uh, the other problem is there's just biases in how um, um, investors vet um, founders so uh, or, or question or do kind of um, interview founders. So uh, there was a brilliant piece of Harvard research that actually found that investors ask men, and these are averages, but are, um, investors are more likely to ask men promotative questions like, you know, what's your vision? Um, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? But they're more likely to ask women um, defensive questions like how are you going to manage cash flow? What's your churn rate of team? All this. So, so straight away you're being asked different questions, which is really interesting psychology um, and biases that exist. Um, there's other stuff that, you know, I, I, I actually mentor a number of VCs now on trying to alleviate biases in their kind of vetting processes. But things that they would do is um, they have three criteria they look for in a founder. So, for example, they look for founders that are um, dogmatically wedded to their vision and will will do anything to achieve that vision. And the way they test for that is they'll um, suggest an idea for a business that's slightly tangential from the actual business. And what they're looking for is a founder that goes, no, that's a stupid idea because of this, this and this, which isn't really what, you know, on average, women don't tend to do that. We don't tend to just dismiss an idea. We will go away. We will think about an idea. We're more collaborative and then we're decisive. Um, and I actually think that makes us great leaders. You know, we're not like Trump-like, like we're just going <laughs> to do this at any cost. Yeah. Uh, so you have like higher levels of empathy. Yeah. Um, higher levels of empathy, but also, I guess, collaboration with our teams. But investors aren't used to that. They're used to more like, you know, uh, Bezos type Amazon founders who are just, you know, complete dogmatic leaders. So they can't quite get their head around us as good leaders. They don't realize that actually collaboration can be a great trait because <laughs> um, they haven't seen it. They haven't seen it in the patterns of other yeah. founders. But you've managed, yeah, you've managed to to raise a lot of money for the dots and to to grow it into this impressive company that is promoting creativity. So what is what is happening on the background that is actually changing this perspective and there's probably more uh, people interested in femtech and in having female founders? 
I think it's a, I think it's a mixture. I think, funnily enough, Me Too helped. I mean, some some female founders are uh, don't think Me Too helped, and I really respect their opinion. But for me, I think it sort of scared <laughs> some of the investors into action. Um, so I, you know, I think it's been one of those sort of like, come on, like your entire portfolio of companies is all run by men and everyone in your investment firm is male and you know having that called out I think has been quite important I think also just the proof of you know there is again endless research that female founded businesses more diverse businesses are really good for business so I think you know uh, investors do listen to facts and as more of that factual proof has come out the more they've sort of been open to it um, I think also um, they've just seen, you know, some f- absolutely phenomenal businesses like Netaporta being built by women. And then they're like, gosh, we've been missing out on these amazing businesses. So I think it's I think it's a mixture of, you know, the facts that there are brilliant businesses that they've missed out on that have been founded by women mm-hmm. and and the and me too putting pressure. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You you were also invited by the mayor of London to be part of the, the, I think it's a mission to scale up or what? Tell me more about that because it was hard to find more information about that. Yeah, so it's an amazing program that's run um, by London Partners, which is part of the mayor's office, which is basically supporting scale-up founders, um, uh, specifically female founders. So as I said, like there aren't that many scale-up founders. You know, at my level, it's 2.3% of all scale-ups are female. Um, So, you know, Sadiq Khan is very passionate about the space. So is Janet Cole, who runs the program. And so what it is, is it was a year long program basically supporting us, um, which and actually they they continue to support us. You know, that kicked off a year ago. But it was things like industry introductions, um, but it also involved um, uh, doing trips into different regions to explore international expansion. So. Uh, one of the trips I did was to Silicon Valley um, with uh, like 15 other female founders, um, which was just incredible. So we spent three days meeting like top venture capitalists, so investors over there. Um, you know, we had fireside chats with like the CTO of Slack, Cal, you know, the the CEO of Box, um, you know, Marnie, who's the COO of Instagram, where we could literally just sit with them and ask all those questions about scale and how they did it. And in a very honest and open environment, which is, I think, one of the challenges here in the UK is there aren't that many like huge tech companies to draw experience from. So having that knowledge, but to be honest, the most powerful thing about it is actually been the group of women I met. So, you know, the 15 of us are incredibly close um, now and, you know, just being able to support each other through the highs and lows, you know, some of the problems that we face are distinctly um problems because we are women. So mm-hmm. being able to have a group of women now that are all at a similar level to me that I can draw on for advice and experience is, is also just been incredibly invaluable, to be honest. And sometimes just a <laughs> hug. I just You just want a hug. And what, what, what was the, the most valuable thing that you've learned um, while, while doing all, all of these trips? Uh, I think, well, I think the most valuable thing, well, the most valuable was the network. It was definitely the network. Uh Um, 
I think that was for me the just just so it's so important as a fan being a founder can be quite lonely sometimes um i have an amazing senior team but you know you are still on the cold face of it all um so having having that support network has just been amazing that's cool. that's amazing one of the things that's been worrying me a little bit as a creative is how we have this um like there's this automation um idea coming up that uh, everyone will, will lose their jobs and even creative people lose their jobs because computers are getting so good. And you have quite a opposite perspective and you think that creativity will be our secret weapon. Um, could you like tell me a little bit more about that and uh, probably like give me a little bit more of peace of mind? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, um, I do a lot of work in this space and a lot of reading in this space. But, I mean, the reality is, is obviously everything is changing and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the robots are coming. Um, but, you know, if you think about machine and machine learning and what they can do, you know, it is, one, it's still very much in its infancy. You know, we're, we're, we're much more behind than I think lots of people <laughs> like to think we are. Um, I mean, one, uh, you know, I, I'm friends with a lot of machine learning fans founders and you know the reality is they're not really doing machine learning they're just you know they're doing fancy algorithms with humans in the background um you know there are three things that machines don't do well and won't do well on anytime soon um they don't have common sense uh they don't have empathy or understand empathy um and they can't mimic that fundamental capability of humans to be creative now You know, I it, 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 when I talk about creativity, I do talk about it in its broader sense of the word. Um, you know, it's very much like. So I, I was actually at a talk recently, and there was a guy on stage before me who brought up a big painting that was done by. Uh, a machine and it was sold I think at Christie's or one of those kind of posh auction houses and it was sold for $400,000 and you know, he was on stage and he was like it's the end of creativity we're selling art by machines um, but the reality is it was a human that developed that algorithm that programmed that machine to come up with that idea it was still human generated. And actually I weirdly about six months later, I was sitting on a panel with the guy who did that, that algorithm. And he completely said exactly what I said, you know, it's still me. It's just, I used a machine to augment my creativity and make my idea come to life. So the tools we're using, And the way we can do things is completely changing, but we're still the essence of the creative thought. Now, will that change one day? Potentially, but it's not happening anytime soon because um, the reason is, is quantum robotics, um, which is where quantum is kind of more like a brain is a long, 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 long time off. And the, the reason why um, machines wouldn't be able to mimic is they can't learn. And so what I mean by that is you can, you know, when, when you're a child and you're holding a glass of water and you spill that glass of water on yourself, you realize that by the movement of spilling, you've kind of got water all over yourself. And so you now learn to not spill water. A machine can't do that. 
we can program it not to spill water. But if it's spilled, it doesn't have the capability to go, oh, that was wrong. I won't do that again. And it doesn't have the capability of thought and creative thought and basically solving problems. What the child was doing there was going, oh, no, I spilled water on myself. That's a problem. I can fix that problem and not do it again. A machine can't do that. And in essence, creativity is problem solving. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long time, a long time away. And so it seems that there's a lot of people promoting uh, dystopian or utopian worlds. And that (laughs) brings like a kind of certain uncertainty in the society because you don't really know what to believe. I think um, I think the real the real kind of power of humans is is change and adaptability, and I guess that's what we. I think the most important skill we're going to have to have, apart from creativity, is continuous learning and changing what we do. And that can be a bit scary for some people. I can, you know, but. At the same time, you know, you know, industries will change. There will be certain industries that will be automated, but it will also bring opportunities if we are able to kind of harness that creativity to create things that we want to create. So I, I get, I'm very excited about the future. <laughs> but as you can tell, I'm also a positive optimist. So we'll see. I love that. <laughs> um, uh, I'm interested to understand what the dots um, have been doing to stay relevant in this highly competitive market, which is creativity. Yeah, I mean, for us, I guess, I guess it goes back to human creativity. Um, <laughs> yeah, everything I care about is just helping my community um, in a professional sense. So, you know, a lot of the work we do is human facing, not just sitting behind screens and doing building stuff that has something that really frustrates me with platforms like Facebook or like Instagram is, you know, how they are bending human behavior to fit their business needs. And what I mean by that is, so for example, with Instagram, they're an advertising model. They need people to be on Instagram every single day so that they can make more money from advertising. So they're basically, you know, creating a product in Silicon Valley in the middle of nowhere, not connected to humans, trying to make an addictive product so people are on there every day. I take and we take a like the opposite approach with the dots. And, and part of the reason I have the ability to do that is because my business model is recruitment, not advertising. So um, companies pay us to hire talent on the dots, like freelance talent, full-time talent. Um, So I don't need my community to be on the dots every day. Um, I just need to help them get jobs, which is what they also want, which is great. So we spend a lot of time with our community understanding their kind of needs and how can we you know, make their lives better. So how do we do that? Um, uh, I guess we do five core things for our community or in very top level, we help them connect the dots online and offline. So um, our community use us to promote themselves. Um, uh, However, we do it in a very different way than LinkedIn, where LinkedIn is all around your CV. The way the dots works is people 
post projects they've worked on, but credit the full team around those projects. So it could be an app that goes up and this is the UI designer, UX designer, front end engineer, back end engineer, or it could be like a magazine as a project and this is the full editorial team around it. So we're very much team focused, not individual focused um, on the kind of self-promotion. And then the, it's a community. So the community um, uses us to find inspiration from other people. Um, they use us to connect with each other for either work or collaboration opportunities. Um, we have a feature which we call our asks feature, which is where you can ask the community for advice on anything. <laughs> so, you know, that can be everything from I need a collaborator to help out with this project, or it could be I need feedback on my portfolio, or it can be I'm looking for a workspace in East London that's free. Can you recommend someone? So I'm very... I'm very passionate about, I guess, something called time well spent, where if my community need help, we help them as quickly as possible, as opposed to just making them hang out with no value for them. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's sort of that's everything. I guess the difference for us is just thinking about it from the human perspective, not the not that we put humans first, not tech first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just have two more questions for you. Pip. And um, the first one will be like from from where you are right now. And um, how do you see the world and how you often describe it in a way that sometimes people don't agree with you? So how, how are you seeing the world in a way that probably a lot of people don't agree with you? And I especially, I'm especially interested because you mentioned like you're very uh, excited about the future. And uh, I'm interested to understand like what's your perspective on that? I think my perspective is pretty much drawn from my community is quite young. Mm -hmm. So uh, 72% of my community is under 35, 41% is under 25. And I, I, I kind of have a saying that, you know, in the, in the younger generation, I trust, um, like, you know, there is, there is so much going on in the world right now that is hideous and so much negativity and nationalism and, But I see a very different community emerging. Um, and I see a community that, you know, cares about the environment. So we, we do a lot of work supporting the Extinction Rebellion, for example. You know, so we see that the community is really engaged with topics that are going to help make this world a better place. So we see things like our community will apply for jobs which have social purpose way more than they'll apply for jobs that don't. Um, we see, um, so this, all these kind of indicators I get on the platform, I get really excited about because I feel that the generation coming through will solve everything we <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> so That's that, awesome. I, I guess that the fear is maybe not, fast enough I, I guess what gives me hope for the future is I can literally see in our community a community that is more socially driven more pro-socially driven more um more diverse um and that gives me real real hope for the future of the world <laughs> What is like to, this is a question that I ask everyone in the podcast, what is like to be Pip and what is making you excited uh, nowadays? It can be a peep, someone that you've met or a piece of work or probably a book that you've been re reading lately. 
Oh my gosh, what makes me excited? <laughs> I, was, I mean, most things, you can tell I'm a bit excitable. <laughs> so, um, what makes me excited? I mean, the things that bring me most joy, I guess, is, is projects like the Fast Track 50 we've just done. Um, and, you know, the, the emails we're getting every day now from the Fast Trackers that they've got jobs and opportunities that they never would have had if it wasn't for the program. So... Those things just bring me pure joy. Um, and I think, to be honest, what brings me joy on a day-to-day basis is I love my team. <laughs> I, um, you know, running a business is really hard. You know, it is an endless roller coaster of highs and lows, but I can have the worst day in the world and my team are just, can pick me up off that. And, you know, they're, very obviously positive driven and yeah I just that I guess them they sort of keep keep me sane and happy (laughs) (laughs) that's great Pip Um, thank you very much for your time I could I could like just speak to you the rest of the day but I think um, our time is up and um, I'm really grateful that you had the time to do this Um, it's a great great time to be with you thank you Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun.